Welcome to The Rounds, a podcast of Marshfield Clinic Health System. I'm your host, Adam Hocking. The Rounds brings together medical experts to discuss fresh, fascinating, and important topics from the world of healthcare. Meditation and mindfulness practices hold incredible potential for improving our daily lives. From lowering stress to increasing compassion and improving concentration, the mindfulness movement has much to offer in today's chaotic world. Joining us today to discuss incorporating mindfulness in our busy lives is Dr. Jennifer Michaels. Dr. Jennifer Michaels is a board-certified clinical psychologist and has worked in Marshfield Clinic's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health for 16 years. She received her master's degree and Ph.D. from Southern Illinois University and completed an internship and fellowship in psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Michaels, welcome to The Rounds, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we are going to talk about a topic today that I find really interesting and has been uh, in vogue lately. Um, if you read just about any media outlet, there's there's articles, there's meditation apps. Um, I'm sure there's other podcasts about meditation and mindfulness. It seems like it's kind of everywhere right now. But I want to start by sort of defining terms. Um, can you talk to me about what it is to be mindful? What does mindfulness mean? The definition that you most often see cited comes out of, from John Kabat-Zinn, and he's often cited as the father of mindfulness meditation-based uh, uh, um, uh, science in Western medicine. Uh, and this comes out of the University of Massachusetts, and, and he defined mindfulness as paying attention in a very specific way, in a particular way, purposefully, uh, in the present moment, and with a non-judgmental stance. So again, I'll say it again, it's paying attention purposefully, in a specific way, um, to the present moment. And how do you differentiate that from, that sounds like, and I'm certainly no expert, it sounds sort of like what meditation is, or it sounds like a branch, or maybe meditation is a branch of mindfulness, is that right? Yeah, I like to think about mindfulness as perhaps being a, um, uh, an umbrella term, kind of an overarching term that, that can incorporate lots of different types of practices, meditation being one of them. Uh, meditation often being identified as being somewhat a little bit more difficult to do than maybe other practices in mindfulness, uh, particularly for beginners. And when you talk about meditation and mindfulness, um, there have been uh, there's there's more and more research coming out about about the benefit, but we're seeing things like um, reductions in anxiety and depression levels, greater levels of self love, compassion, um, even higher levels of cognition and feeling better physically. Uh, I guess in your experience, are these things that you have witnessed, and why do you think meditation and mindfulness are having this kind of effect? Right. The research is really broad on the beneficial effects of mindfulness-based practices um, and meditation-based practices, so you're absolutely right in that regard. And we do see these, these benefits. Now, I practice, of course, clinical psychology, and so uh, I see the direct benefits that occur in the medical setting and with psychiatric populations or with um, populations that have various medical conditions. And in, in the setting that I'm in, we direct see benefits for anxiety reduction, 
depression reduction, and frankly, kind of globalized distress reduction, uh, particularly with the suffering that can occur with a number of health conditions, whether it be chronic pain or um, uh, cancer, uh, other uh, types of conditions like rheumato- rheumatology uh, conditions. And so we, we, what we see is patients being able to cope with the array of effects from those health conditions or to experience just a raw reduction of depression and anxiety from these types of practices. Um, and, you know, the research benefits, though, are far broader than that. You know, they're, they're, uh, they've now documented evidence that uh, patients as they age, there's a natural atrophy in the brain, there's a reduction of gray matter, but for patients that are engaged in mindfulness-based practices, their decrease in gray matter is, uh, uh, is less than those that don't. So it seems like there's some um, brain resilience that is occurring from the practice with aging alone. We see boost to the immune system uh, from mindfulness-based practices, and that's an interesting area of research that they're looking at for all kinds of things, including cancer uh, treatments, to, see, to understand can we better harness the immune system through various uh, types of interventions to really get the best uh, outcomes possible. Um, you know, outside of raw health benefits, you also just see uh, impacts to uh, relationship functioning and, and general um, uh, individual functioning. Uh, organizations that have instituted mindfulness-based uh, practices in their companies uh, are seeing improved employee relations, better regulated employees, employees with lower rates of distress and psychiatric conditions, uh, improved team-based uh, interactions. So it seems to be one of those things that has a really broad application to uh, not only our health uh, our, uh, our, our physical health, uh, but also our uh, psychological and relational well-being. And, you know, I, I mean, the research is everywhere that this works, that, that the benefits that you're talking about are real. But I wonder how, you know, the skeptic in me says, how, you know, I mean, just paying attention to the moment, how is this? Do we know the mechanism? Well, there's been, uh, there's been, um, uh, a lot of uh, research on this, uh, it's, much of it has come out of the University of Wisconsin. And one of the things that they have found uh, about the effects of mindfulness is that it seems to reduce activity in what is called the limbic or the, uh, uh, the limbic center of the brain. The, in the core structure that much of the research focuses on is on the amygdala, which is sort of right in the core of the brain in the limbic region. And this is sort of our stress and worry center. And so this idea of honing our attention to uh, the present moment, to the breath or to a visual stimuli like the flicker of a, of a candle or to uh, the sounds in the environment, honing our attention seems to quiet that place in the brain. And what we see at the same time is uh, an increase in activity in the cortical loop, and that's largely associated with the frontal, the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe of our brain. And the area that they predominantly study there is the left prefrontal cortex. And as people quiet their brain in this way and focus their attention on the moment, as opposed to being sort of up in their heads, thinking and multitasking, there's greater left prefrontal cortex 
cortex activity. And that is associated with positive emotions, positive affect, people reporting improved mood, reduced anxiety as well. And so... Um, so those are the brain regions that seem to be most affected by this process of honing attention. Hmm. So it can actually change your brain in a way. Exactly. You know, we used to think about um, neuroplasticity, this, you know, this uh, term that's been around as we talk about d development in young children. And really the explosion of neuroplasticity happens between that zero to five age range. And that's always been the core area of study where uh, children's brains are just changing at an enormous rate and um, neural connections are being formed. But there's been a great deal of neuroscience research in the last uh, 10 to 15 years that suggests that neuroplasticity persists through over the lifespan, not at the rate that it does in younger children, but that we can really impact our, our brain health through various types of cognitive practices and that we can impact how um, our brains tend to focus themselves um, through these types of activities. And, and hence, neuroplasticity is, is something that we can uh, um, capitalize on at other phases of life. I find it interesting that um, you know meditation as a practice has been around for thousands of years. Um, in my limited knowledge, I would think it originated as sort of an Eastern uh, philosophy, and now it has sort of migrated as a Western practical application. Do you think that it has become so in vogue in the West, maybe because of the time we find ourselves in with all the distractions that we have, cell phones glued to our hands, all the information that we're inundated with? Um, does it almost underscore the importance of this practice or make it more important now than, let's say, 30, 40 years ago? Right. You know, this really um, was introduced in the 70s in Western, uh, in the Western, in Western medicine. And um, I think the, the things that have led it to really take off is that patients who, uh, it, it, in medicine, it was introduced in patients who were suffering and really struggling with various types of conditions found benefit. And from there it has grown and there's been, you know, sort of uh, this uh, uh, development over the last 30, 40 years um, in the area of medicine and science. And I think in some regards, that pathway has legitimized it a bit more than what you might see if it had come through a different kind of pathway into sort of Western Western world. You're absolutely right that this is an ancient practice and people have found benefit in this forever. But it really um, is something that I think has drawn more attention because people are looking for relief valves from this constant barrage of, of uh, information that's thrown at them all the time. They're, we're certainly in a um, stage where there is sort of a hyper-information uh, sort of chamber that everybody is stuck in, um, often due to our own behaviors, frankly, you know, with cell phone access and, and whatnot. And f also culturally, there has been for many years a push that to be successful and to uh, really be functioning well means that you're an excellent multitasker. And I think that what we're now seeing are the consequences of those types of pushes in our society and that people, frankly, are burned out and they're tired. You know, um, uh, businesses are seeing this. Certainly healthcare is seeing this among uh, physicians and their staff providers across multiple types of industries. Um, we've had to pay attention to the fact that we're sort of 
uh, suffer, workers are suffering and people out there aren't doing well because of this push for more, 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 more productivity and functioning in our brains. And, you know, now the research suggests that we're really not as good when we're multitasking. We're better when we can hone attention in one thing or uh, one thing at a time. And so I think it's it's kind of generated a... Um, a need, a place for some other practices to help people get back to um, a, a, a way of honing their attention more specifically and moving out of this multitasking arena. Hmm. There was a study that came out of Yale, I believe, and it was it was talking about how mindfulness and meditation kind of helped to slow down what they called our monkey brain. Right. That's the, you know, uh, self-obsessed sort of when your mm -hmm. mind is wandering, um, thoughts that may creep into, you know, why did I say this or why did I do that? Or, you know, these real self-obsessive sure. and kind of um, not very productive thoughts. I, I guess I'm curious in your opinion, why does our brain tend to cling to sort of sponge up the negative when we have this, you know, uh, alternative in mindfulness and meditation? Why, why is the default of our brain to right. kind of go into that right. monkey mode? The cognitive scientists would say that, you know, that's a, been a survival mechanism for us over the course of time and that um, sort of hypervigilance, right, to our environment, paying attention to all the stimuli around us has been a, adaptive for survival. The problem now is that it... it um, it doesn't really fit anymore. Um, that adaptation doesn't really fit to uh, what the demands are that are, uh, you know, that we're confronted with as, as human beings at this point in the essentially overstimulation that occurs. But the brain naturally is drawn to looking at unique, um, novel um, experiences. It's it's drawn to that as a as a survival mechanism. So we're going to see the thing that sticks out, or the dramatic thing that grabs our attention, um, or the loud noise that happens over here. Our brains are going to be drawn to that versus a quieting kind of effect. That's just, you know, I think what is what has facilitated maintenance of the species over the course of time. So it actually takes sort of a manual override to. Um, scale that back to 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 deliberately move out of that that practice. I don't think it's all that much different than physically what we see for people with the inertia that can kind of happen with the body. You know, if you talk with many people, they you know they feel a pull that it's you know often easier to sit or to stay idle or whatnot, and and it takes sort of a manual override of activity of forcing regular exercise to kind of keep that body in motion. We tend to degrade to certain you know um, stat a stat certain status quo. Um, we see that with food choices too, right? We're drawn to certain things that are high fat or high, you know, and it, it takes this sort of deliberate activity to move away from those natural inclinations. So I don't think the mind is really any different than that way. It's, we're drawn to hypervigilance, sure. you know, um, in that regard. And you had mentioned earlier that that some companies are starting to put in into play mindfulness meditation practices. I just read an article on LinkedIn that talked about Google and General Mills and Intel and Aetna um, and, and even Goldman Sachs, which I found kind of surprising, um, implementing meditation and or mindfulness practices. And they're noticing, as you said, increased productivity, lower stress, better teamwork. 
I guess, how do we make the case? I mean, that data is pretty compelling, but how do we make the case to more employers, businesses, uh, and people in general that this is something that can help? Right. Well, I think it. You know, the the most powerful thing is the um, are the people who are the companies that are willing to take chances this way and experiment, you know, with it. And it's the raw data that comes out of that. You know, that uh, becomes the most convincing argument. You know, it's these um, progressive companies that are willing to experiment that can then say, these are the effects that we see. Um, I think the other thing that comes from uh, grassroots efforts, frankly, you know, within the organization and right here at Marshfield Clinic, we've actually seen some unique initiatives that have that have played out that way in that way in certain um, areas of the organization where there have been groups of people that have come together and have started mindfulness based practices. I don't know that those have a lot of publicity yet, um, but, you know, I, I think that that core level of employees saying this is what we need you know, to have uh, additional wellness um, in our workplace, you know, is the other is the other venue for that. Ultimately, these are business decisions, right? And I think as businesses recognize that they have um, happier employees, that they have uh, uh, less uh, uh, attrition of employees out of their organization, which is costly, that their employees are functioning better, that their uh, utilization of um a health insurance uh, for various conditions is reduced, those become the most compelling arguments to say this is part of a wellness program for, for our organization that's important to us. So if someone's sitting here listening and saying, <clears throat> this all sounds great, but how do, I, how do I do it? How do I start to incorporate mindfulness meditation into my daily life? Um, what, what is your advice for someone that wants to get started? You know, I think the easiest way to do this is uh, more through the mindfulness pathway um, from my observations. And maybe one of the most simple things to do is to simply try to take a few minutes to just be present in what you're doing in your actual environment. So a couple of easy ways to do this might be if you're washing dishes tonight, see if you could just pay attention to washing dishes. And how warm does the water feel? Is there a, a scent of the dish soap that you can uh, get a hint of from the distance that you're at from the water? What's the slick of the soap off the plate or the pan that you're, that you're washing? Um, do you have a window that you're looking out? And is there anything that you see you know, out that window that captures your attention? But it's that idea of what I almost call shifting tracks in the brain and coming out of the thinking brain where your brain is analyzing, running details and thinking to trying to hone your focus on what's right in front of your face. Another place that's a classic way to do this is in the shower in the morning and have mindful showering. You know, could you notice the um, water off the shoulders? How warm is the water? The slick of the soap, you know, the smell of the shampoo. Um, is there a feeling of just having a nice warm shower in the morning that you kind of can sense through your system? Uh, that would be another, you know, another pathway to do this. Um, even through a relationship area can sometimes be easy as well, particularly people who have may have children in their lives or, you know, a loved one that they particularly enjoy time with. It's, it's very nice with younger children 
Um, and just the idea of sitting down with them and just playing and, and trying to really hone your attention on what are they doing? How are their hands moving? How do they laugh? What toy are they drawn to? How do they like to sort of interface with you and come in and just noticing the nuances of what's right in front of your face? sitting out in a back patio or deck and just uh, trying to pay attention to the sounds of nature. Do you hear um, birds uh, around? Are there any other rustling of the leaves, you know, that are, that you can hear around you? Is there a traffic sound of a road that's in the, in the distance? Just that ability to bring the attention into the present moment is often one of the easiest ways to start. Probably the most classic thing that people do is their attention to their breath. So they may just do a, a sitting mindfulness activity or setting, sitting meditation where they try to pull off two, three minutes, five minutes, you know, where they sit and just pay attention to the sensation of the breath coming in and out of the lungs. Uh, and sometimes that can be enhanced by thinking about breathing in through the mouth uh, or breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth to kind of hone concentration a little better on, on a kind of a, a structure for that activity. Um, some people will add counting to it, and as they breathe in, it will be a count of one, and as they breathe out, they'll say in their head, not out loud, two, and as they breathe in, it would be three, and as they breathe out, it would be four, up to like a count of ten or so, and then they may start again at one. The, the trick with all of these things that becomes um, the risk factor, I guess, for people getting frustrated and giving up is that people have an expectation that if they can't hold their focus there, that they failed at the task. Um, when really the core of the activity is that exact process of having your focus slip away and building the muscle of having to bring the focus back to whatever you were on over and over again. That is the core of this, but people often mistake it and feel that if that's happening to them, that they have, they're failing at the task or it just isn't working or it isn't useful. It's that bringing yourself back over and over again when your attention slips away, and it absolutely will, that is the muscle building activity and the thing that does improve with, with practice, that, it, that people get better at holding their attention for longer periods of time. When I fall off of a meditation practice, which happens often in my life, um, and I come back to a mindfulness uh, practice, you know, I find myself maybe being able to hold at my focal point, if that's the breath or if that's just nature sounds or whatnot, sometimes for five to 10 seconds before my head is darting off to some other arena. Oh, I should have get milk tomorrow, you know, cause I think we're almost out or, oh, that there's a load of laundry or I need to call that person or whatever it is, you know, of, of a thousand things that could go through one's mind. Um, so that idea of losing the focus very, very quickly is a universal phenomenon. It's the idea of being able to rein in the mind and to bring the mind back to the breath or to the focal point and say, nope, let's come back in a gentle way, inviting it back and trying to start again. And, and uh, as Dan Harris, who is a, a ABC News correspondent and has written a number of books on this, you know, would say it's that a process of starting over again, starting over, starting over, that is the muscle building. 
if you thought of this in a physical metaphor, um, you know, if you were um, thinking about uh, uh, running a longer race and you hadn't run in a long time and you took off running and if you couldn't run the full 10 miles the first time, you wouldn't necessarily just say, well, I failed. Clearly, I can't do it. You know, there's nothing that works about this and I'm done. You would more so recognize, well, no, I got to kind of build up my lung capacity and my physical capacity to be able to get a quarter mile or get a half mile and then go longer and longer, right? If you're lifting weights and you have a goal of strengthening your muscles, you don't necessarily see it as failure when your muscle gets fatigued at the, you know, 10th rep, um, uh, rep that you're doing, right, of the, of the bicep curl or whatnot. You would see that as, no, the muscle is fatigued and it's breaking down and that is actually the process of building the muscle, right? It's breaking it down and that it's coming back to it over and over again and having that muscle build and continuing to work through it that gets you to your goal. Same thing with mindfulness practice. It's the process of falling off focus and bringing it back that is the core skill to learn and, to, and that will improve with fewer and fewer times of falling off of the focal point as you progress. I'm glad you said that because I, I, I've um, experimented with meditation and meditation apps. And whenever I'm doing it, I'm sitting there thinking, am I doing it right? Am I supposed to be doing this? I got distracted. Is that wrong? So it's really about building that muscle up rather than being perfect right away. Exactly. Exactly. You know, some people, you know, in addition to just uh, trying to be present with what you're doing in this in this moment, some people will find that apps where there's a guide uh, provide or a certain line of music or there's maybe counting going on. There's a variety of apps for smartphones and, and uh, uh, iPads and, and whatnot that people can turn to to um, engage this activity maybe from an easier starting point. One of the things that I've sometimes encouraged people to do is just walking out of their uh, work setting at the end of the day uh, and, uh, you know, as they maybe leave the, the exit door and they've got a bit of a walk to their car, using that as an opportunity to hone attention and just notice, you know, is it how dark is it out or how light is it if it's, you know, lighter as opposed to the depths of the winter? You know, what's the cloud pattern? Is there a bit of a wind? How warm does the temperature feel? How much activity is going on around me as other people are exiting for their work day? And just that ability to sort of transition into being in the moment as opposed to often being up in our head and still carrying through with the jet trail of work related thoughts is a natural breakpoint and and can have a relaxing effect. There's something about that act of tr shifting tracks in the brain out of this uh, kind of uh, thinking brain, analytical brain to observing, noticing, um, uh, being aware and focused on one thing in the moment that tends to have that stress relieving effect. So there are just a variety of ways to do this that uh, whether it's the breath or whether it's paying attention as you're walking from one place to another or the shower example that I gave that are entry points into trying to hone attention in this way. So we talk about meditation and mindfulness and it has all these wonderful applications for pretty much anyone. We all think, we all have stress, we all probably could use these, um, these tools. I guess I'm just curious in your practice, is there any condition, depression, anxiety, whatever, that uh, meditation and mindfulness are most helpful with or you see the best results? 
with? Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the area that it's most applicable for is for anxiety-based conditions. Although we see lots of benefit for depression as well, there's some uh, research that's come out in the last five to 10 years looking at people with recurrent episodes of depression and that mindfulness-based stress uh, um, um, reduction um, interventions work help, very helpful in getting pl- patients um, back into a state of remission above and beyond treatment as usual. So again, there's broad applications, but particularly for anxiety, that is the key place um, because our brains are particularly active with anxiety and jumping around into different uh, arenas. Um, with a variety of anxiety disorders, we see a strong rumination effect where people are really stewing or they're they're caught in worry they're caught in in um in sort of an obsessiveness about various stressors of their lives and this is one of those um uh, essentially uh, cognitive practices that can be a significant relief valve to stepping away from that arena of the mind just being caught in its own loop of rumination uh, so, you know, in my practice in clinical psych as, a bo- as, as well as health psychology with cancer patients, you can imagine in, in cancer uh, that there's significant distress, particularly early on with a diagnosis, and the brain just wants to run into all types of territories that are scary uh, to think about as someone is facing uncertainty with the condition and waiting for a treatment plan to be constructed by their medical team. These are key times where mindfulness-based practices are something that we help patients with and help a skill set that we help them grow so that they can have some way of trying to get out of that other zone and come into another uh, place in their mind for little moments of reprieve little moments of break. And it's not something that, you know, you do this and then you're you're protected endlessly from rumination. It's something that you have to do routinely because the rumination, you know, that stewing is going to keep trying to bombard your brain. But it is one pathway that has really had substantial benefit for providing relief for patients. Well, I feel more relaxed already. Dr. Jennifer Michaels, thank you so much for joining us today on The Rounds. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. The Rounds is produced by Ryan Matterick and supported by the Marketing and Communications Department of Marshfield Clinic Health System. You can subscribe to The Rounds and download episodes via iTunes or by visiting shine365.marshfieldclinic.org. I'm Adam Hawking, and I hope you'll join us next time on The Rounds.